on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I think in essence, the most, you know, from subtle racism to extreme racism, there's this this sense that I get of like the white male psyche thinks that we're here as people of color to make them feel bad for being white. Uh-huh. <laughs> and nobody wants to feel bad for being who they are. We, we're here to make them feel ashamed and, and they... they the human brain and heart will go through such extremes to not feel shame. And it sounds like, why don't you just get over it? It was that, you know, it was so long ago. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. So that's what shame sounds like when it's trying to be dodged and avoided. So that's, that's what I encounter. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Pohanix, from the Eagle Clan of the Heisler First Nation, a First Nation tribe located on the northwest coast of what is now known as British Columbia, Canada. Pohanix is a living, loving result of the coastal indigenous village that raised her, and all that survived in the lineage she was born to. She honors the elders, mentors, and huge family whose love she is a living result of, and the ancestors whose strength and resilience is flowing through her veins. Her recognition of the responsibility to use her strengths in a meaningful way and contribution to greater change led her to develop heart-to-heart indigenous relations consultation based on her unique understanding from walking in two worlds, both indigenous and settler cultures. As an unsettled settler on stolen land, I am grateful to consider Pohaniks a friend and mentor for me on this path of practicing allyship in support of the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island as well as connecting with my own ancestry and lineage. In our conversation today, we speak of the right use of privilege, the necessity of uncovering your trauma and discovering your gifts, and how every new encounter between Indigenous folk and settlers is an opportunity to heal the unresolved pain of first contact and come back into connection from the heart. Enjoy. Welcome. Pokenix, the Heisler Nation. Thank you, Ian. I'd love to begin by asking my guests just to give uh, a little sense of where they are in this moment, um, you know, physically, spiritually, emotionally, just so the listener can can tune in to them. Yeah, I'm here in the place now known as Bowen Island, unceded Coast Salish territory, uh, the home of the Squamish people. Uh, the place that was called by them uh, Nachlalachem. And yeah, I just got back from, from a trip home. I was up in my, my homeland for a few weeks, so I'm just on the other side of that and very filled with, with memories of it and integrating my experience of it and just feeling very blessed to to be here and conversation with you on this day. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm very excited to speak with you today as well. 
And I wanted to give a little, yeah, a little introduction in the best way I can uh, from my heart. I believe we first met maybe five or six years ago. I think in person, maybe at a at a local festival uh, in this region, where I believe you were offering uh, one of your early stage uh, workshops or talks around indigenous heart to heart connection and bridging what felt like bridging the the gap between you know settlers and indigenous understandings uh and i think then it was very clear to me that you were doing something that i didn't see in many places you know it, it was it was uh it was unique and and beautiful in a way that um maybe a lot of people even myself were were kind of like still wary of of stepping into because you know it feels like there's a there's a whole um, consequence to really opening that door, um, and and the willingness for you to to hold that door, you know, is a great gift. And since then, uh, having having attended a few talks, and then proceeding into uh, supporting some of your events, your longer deep dives, actually into the heart to heart indigenous you know consultation. That I feel, you know, you've really offered me a great gift in being a mentor in this practice of allyship. You know what does it really mean to be an ally, and and you know that continues to reveal itself through your you know great insight and and great compassion. And so, this conversation for me was really uh, an opportunity to you know use that lens or that um, understandings that you have to be able to illuminate this conversation around, uh, around masculinities, um, and particularly you know with a with an indigenous lens and also your own. You know, breadth of experience in a number of different worlds because I understand you know in your own story you've you've walked in in a number of worlds. Perhaps I'd love to begin there, which is how did you come to understand that that was your you know medicine to bring to to really step into this space where you know bridging this uh, the relationship between settlers and indigenous was where you felt most called. A few different things led me to this, one of them being, I think, first and foremost, coming from a village of of, of survivors, post-genocidal community that I was born into, and seeing compassion demonstrated to me from my mother, from my aunties, from the matriarchs and elders in my community, and even though I had every reason to be racist, it was frowned upon. And so that, that, um, sense of having compassion and understanding be my initial approach to, to anything and everything in life is evidence of what has survived through the brutality of colonization. So that is, I feel what the seeds are of what I do. And then over the years, just finding that I, I just kept having the same conversation with, with, you know, what are commonly called white people of like answering the same questions, you know, once they realize I'm indigenous and, and they kind of warm up to me, they would have the same curiosities or concerns or, um, you know, things that they just wanted to say from their heart to indigenous people. And I just kept having the same conversation over and over. And one day I was like, I just need to get you all in the same room. So I just have to say it once. <laughs> and and then I got interviewed on the topic of Indigenous right relationship. And it was 
terrifying to me the amount of truth that I had to share. And I was shaking through the whole interview and crying a bit and and trying to breathe deep and center and focus. And from there came a big list of things that you need to know about Native people, which turned into like a living room experiment by donation evening workshops for, you know, five to 10 willing people to come and hear what um, myself and my co-facilitator at the time, Warren Hooley, had to say. And yeah, from there it grew. From there it grew. It was very well received. It was it was terrifying to be faced with that much love in one room uh, from these genuine, sincere people who come to hear the real, raw truth. And we just kept saying, like, man, we need a whole weekend. We can't just do this in one evening. We need, like, a whole weekend. And then from there, I designed, like, the weekend intensive deep dive and a website and became a business entrepreneur and do consults, you know, for different organizations and companies that work with Indigenous people. And now it's now it's what I do. Mm-hmm. I understand you also spent time in in the white world. I believe you you know you got married and and there's a whole story there. And I mean, I'd love for you to illuminate some of that, you know, time for you and and what that was like. Yeah, yeah. I guess that that kind of started for me. Like I moved to East Vancouver in my early twenties to do youth work and went to a lot of open mic nights on Commercial Drive and started mingling with a different crowd. Went to my first festival called Fairies and Fools on the Sunshine Coast, and everyone was dressed up as like wizards and fairies and elves, and there was <laughs> bass music all night long, and they all made really good chocolate and gave really good hugs, and <laughs> I was like, "You people are different, and I like you. I think I'm gonna stay." And I then started to associate more with that community, and at that time, I was at a community house on Commercial Drive, met somebody, fell in love, traveled a bit. And he was a war veteran, an American ex-soldier, Iraqi war veteran, suburban white boy from Central California. And we ended up, we ended up getting married. I brought him home to my home village and Holy moly, did I learn a lot. (laughs) He was, yeah, he had a Hollywood level of understanding of indigenous people. And so it was a huge awakening for him to come to my, to my village and learn things firsthand. And I was scrambling around trying to cultural bridge understandings between this like American white man who was traumatized from being at war and my, you know, elders and family and community. And from there, I learned so much about cultural bridging and understanding. It was very humbling. Wow. And and then what happened in that relationship? I mean, it sounds like at a certain point, you also lived, I believe, in California? Yeah, we moved to California to for him to get help from, uh, from the VA, from Veteran Affairs, for being in the military for six years and being stationed in Iraq during war. And he had a lot of PTSD symptoms that I couldn't support him with. So we moved in with his mom and grandma um, in her cute little house in the suburbs of, of uh, near San Francisco. I lived there for two years and supported him in his healing 
lots of therapy appointments, lots of like group work, individual work, physical, he had a lot of physical ailments and psychological stuff that I helped him with until it just burnt me out. It literally just burnt me out. And we ended up blessing the parting. We moved to the island of Maui and uh, had an unwedding ceremony and yeah. and um, went our separate ways. When did you take on Polkanix then as well? Because I understand, you know, I think in a previous conversation we had that there was a there was a time for you when you had a you know white name or the, then there, there was a transition and then almost like how that confronting that was to the people you know to the other white populace trying to you know even say the, the <laughs> name that you took on and what had that revealed you know in the kind of again the awareness or the general sense of of indigenous people i was born with a colonial name with a white name and at age four I received an ancestral name passed down from my great-great-grandmother. And I knew about it, you know, kind of vaguely knew about it throughout my childhood. And I think on a deeper level, identified as that and really wanted to go by it. But I'm like, oh, but it'll be too complicated and too hard. And it's hard to, I don't even know how to spell it because it was never really written down. (laughs) Because we, we didn't have a written language until recently and all these things until I was 22 and doing youth work in um, East Vancouver and the the person who was doing breakdancing, uh, my friend Manier, he was like, you know, I, I told him my, my colonial name and I'm like, I can tell you my indigenous name, but it'll be too hard and you won't be able to pronounce it so I won't even bother. He's like, no, no, tell me. And I was like, okay, Polkhanix. And then he got it on the first try. He's like, that's what I'm going to call you because that's your real name. The other one is just your white name. And he went by his, you know, ancestral name. He's from Eritrea, the country of Eritrea in Africa. And I was like, all right, here it goes. (laughs) And it really, I learned so much about somebody upon first contact, mostly about their relationship with learning and how self-defeating people are <laughs> around like, I'm going to suck at it so I won't even try. Or can you write it out for me? I, I do better if you write it out. Or like, it just confronts them with their own whiteness and their own ignorance right off the bat, which really brings things to like a deeper, truthier level right away. And I'm, and I'm holding space for their learning process their relationship to me as an indigenous person. Um, when I was married, I and living in the suburbs of California, I stopped going by it for a while. I introduced myself as my white name because of how nervous I made people. They'd be having like borderline anxiety attacks trying to say it and being like, I'm just going to call you Pocahontas. And like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, you know what? Just call me by my white name. That's <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it's very, very learning, very learning experience. And what was it for you then to to really claim that name? Like what, what kind of awakened in you when you did that? It, I think it was like, you know, I look back on it now and it's, it took me out of hiding. It was kind of like, I'm Indigenous, but, you know, on, only when it's safe. I'm Indigenous, but only, you know, in certain circumstances. And so really claiming Polkhaniks 
you know, as my identity, uh, it really, it really brought it to the front and center of my life and brought every situation and every experience after that to, to a deeper, more authentic level. I brought it to the place where I choose to live from. And, you know, from that has, there's been some challenges, but it's kind of become pretty standard now. There's a kind of a script <laughs> that we go through every time I introduce myself. And um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty used to it. I'm reading the book in- The Inconvenient Indian by Thomas King. It, it was one of those, uh, you know, award-winning books about North American Indigenous history um, from an Indigenous writer. Um, but one thing he says in the book is, History is the stories we tell about the past. And that really struck me um, around essentially the deeply impoverished, even general understanding about the indigenous history of what's called in English North America. You know, and I, I speak for myself even saying that, you know, I can grow up in this culture in a, you know, public education and have so little understanding about the indigenous history. I mean, the more that I deepen in this, you know, understanding, it just it boggles my mind. Um, and maybe it doesn't, because in that sense, that, that seems to be the function of colonization is to actually, you know, to erase or to make invisible. And I wonder now doing the work that you have, and, and really, in a way, being a, a kind of first contact for uh, settlers in, and, you know, real life indigenous per- person, indigenous woman, uh, what are the stories that seem so alive and well maybe maybe unspoken but but kind of announce themselves you know with this encounter i would say the main thing the main message that i get from folks who encounter me um as an indigenous person who's willing to be outwardly indigenous made evident by going by my ancestral name is that I think the the main thing that I that I get I guess the energy that I attract in my life is folks who say I'm sorry and I don't know what to do. Mm. Can you please tell me what to do? Is it because they understand something's like you know basically wrongdoing was done a sort of vague understanding it seems to be and and therefore this kind of like how do we fix it um you know right now is that the sort of impulse the reactivity that happens? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And just just a lot of ignorance, a lot of ignorance and a lot of like, I just learned about residential school, or I just learned about the smallpox blanket genocide or, um, and just being kind of isolated in that, and not having any other settler folk to talk about it with and feeling very alone in that and oftentimes I'm the first and maybe only person they've talked to about it so far which is part of why I'm like I need to get you all in the same room so you can meet each other because there's so many of you and I keep meeting you that's cool but like I would love you to meet each other (laughs) what's the sort of foundational elements then that you want settlers to know and by this meaning almost from the historical side you know what's the sort of foundational historical understanding you know without getting too lost in dates and things like that you know but but like the the essence of what's important as a foundational understanding for settlers to know about you know the indigenous people in in north america i would say 
just to know the basics for one, which I think most folks know by this point, the basics being we're still here. We we're not extinct. Like some, some people may think, and we're, you know, in the journey of making a comeback and just the, you know, the things that happened, like how, how we were colonized in, in terms of the Indian act and, you know, all of the things that we consider precious and cherish as a, as a culture, as a people were made illegal. Uh, the residential schools, the Indian day schools, the, um, smallpox, tuberculosis, you know, blanket genocide being gifted diseases. And so those are, those are kind of the basic things. And then now with like the missing and murdered indigenous woman genocide, um, the huge rate of children, indigenous children in care, the, the poverty, um, and substance abuse rates and all of the things that are still very, the, the impacts of colonization that are lived and experienced daily by, by indigenous people that this is what happened and this is the impact of it. It's not something that happened in the past. Colonization isn't something that, that did happen and now we're here. It's something that is still actively happening on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. That strikes me that yeah, part of this sense of in the past means that it's somewhat, you know, it's, it's sort of gone and, and no longer applicable. You know, it's sort of, a, well, too bad. And, you know, anyway, here we are. And uh, it really um, impacted me when I re- recognized, um, I think, through doing this work that the, you know, the past, even the idea that the past is gone could be seen as a colonial understanding that as time is a linear progression of, you know, future to the to the present and then gone is very different than I would say, you know, a general indigenous cosmology understands through cycles um, and how, in a sense, the present is everything that happened in the past, you know, now. <laughs> uh, and so there's no goneness then. Um, as well, that the time even from, you know, first contact on this continent till now is not very long. Um, you know, that it's actually a very blip in comparison, of course, to the long arc of history and certainly with many nations and peoples who've been here for so long, that this is like, you know, this is still an anomaly in in the sense of uh, the timeline. So even that alone is sort of opens the possibility, right, of, oh, wow, yeah, like the, there is no, there's no gone, there's no past. And it's still very much alive for nations that are contending with, yeah, the legacy of the decisions that were made you know, and reading this book too, The Inconvenient Indian, you know, he really breaks it down in a, in a beautiful narrative that's accessible to really see the kind of, you know, systematic decisions and policies that were made to dislocate peoples from their land, as well as the general orientation to them as assimilation is, you know, or goneness is sort of the, the rule of the day. It's like, well, eventually there'll be us, you know, quote us, and then it'll be great. We don't have to worry about, you know, Indian people anymore. Like that was sort of the tone of it and how that's not something that can be easily forgotten, certainly, um, because it's still happening. And so I appreciate the capacity to open that up um, in your workshops, especially that I've been to. Now, this podcast is is looking at um, the lens of, you know, masculinities. And I would love to, you know, one, bring up something you mentioned to me just prior that, you know, in your workshops, they're largely attended by women. 
and I would I wonder first if you would speak to why you think that women are flocking to something like this and and the men are still largely absent. Well, for one, it's a lot to do with like feeling work and vulnerability and community connectedness, group processes, and those are are typically more populated by by women, regardless if it was like one on sexual trauma or, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever kinds of group work people do together. That's why, that's why it's mostly women mm-hmm. just right off the bat, just cause it has to do with a lot of feeling. <laughs> and you mentioned as well that there's this, um, yeah, almost like a, a willingness to, to do the work on or to, to apologize on behalf of men that's you know or the the ones that seem to be perpetrating you know the violence and and historically as well that the women are sort of more likely to um maybe through their own conditioning as well you know to kind of do that work on their behalf because they're unwilling to do so uh which is also seems to be part of the larger trend you're right that women tend to carry more emotional labor you know in relationship with men in this culture and in one of the workshops you gave uh you really brought i think a striking lens on really i think those those first uh or the, the first generation that had come over from you know the quote old country in particularly this would be I, I suppose the explorer phase uh and i would love if you could speak to that you know to characterize your understanding of you know who who were those often men that came over and you know what what was going on for them uh both you know from historical record but also to tune in and, and you know surmise um what they were carrying when they when they came over? Yeah, I over over time have come to view the original people who came over as runaway teenage boys fleeing their broken home, and if, if I think of like why somebody would leave to begin with, like why would they leave if they had everything they needed? Why would they leave if things were good? Why would they leave if things were abundant and all their needs were met? But no, they were leaving because of like industrial revolution, wars, famines, everything was, you know, depleting and they needed to find a new home. So in essence, it's like my home's broken. So I'm going to come to yours. My home's, my home's broken. So I'm going to come and. And I mean, we all know what happens when you try run from something without healing from it is it perpetuates. And so they, they brought all the things that they were running from and brought it here. And it inevitably became in many ways, like what they were running from to begin with. And then I, I really started to think of that in like the psyche of a teenage boy who was mad at their parents and their broken childhood and what kind of trauma forms from that, what kind of psychological beliefs and patternings form from that. And I think of how this place in North America is founded and the powers to be prioritizing like professional athletes, you know, making way more money and entertainers making way more money than nurses and teachers. That's totally something a teenage boy would do. (laughs) Mm. And 
they're, yeah, they're being like, you know, active military forces, but not like an active caring force, you know, if, if need be, because how would a teenage boy design something of that magnitude that they could just deploy if need be? And just, it's just so, you know, coming fighting, basing, basing an entire creation of, of a, of a country on fighting, um, results in more fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, I was touched um, thinking back, I mean, to that first generation that prior to even the ones that would have come to settle, right, there was this initial like exp- exploration phase, it seemed. And I understand um, my h- historical uh, recall around South America in particular, I think, you know, like the Maya or the Inca was, um, you know, the conquistadors came and they seemed like they were pretty much ready to uh, decimate, you know, where they could. Whereas I understand, I think, like at least, you know, northern uh, areas in Canada, that was more of a, an exploratory time. And often that, that, that age was characterized, it seemed to be, from you know, what I've been reading, um, as one of actual relationship. Um, I think largely because the explorers at the time didn't know much about the region. And so, you know, it was either plead for, with the uh, indigenous people who knew the place um, how to be there. Uh, or starve, right, uh, or die. And so um, there's this uh, line I just want to read too, which was interesting um, in the book here, where it talks about in the early days of that time, It's she, uh, the writer, Sylvia Van Kirk, says that the intermediaries uh, between the fur traders and the uh, explorers was were often Native women, actually. And she says here, um, uh, said, most, if not all, of the European explorers Soldiers, trappers, map makers, and traders were men. And that dealing with a native woman they could sleep with <laughs> held more appeal than dealing with a native man they would have to shoot. <laughs> and there's something about that, which, you know, again, hearing that as well, I mean, I wonder what comes up with you. Well, I think there's a, there's a lot happening in a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different like aspects of that period of history, his story that, you know, that can be talked about here. And, you know, hearing what you're saying about, you know, this quote from this book, and like, it was the women who, who were the guides and who told them how not to die, essentially, (laughs) (laughs) you know, don't set up your camp there, eat this, not that, don't touch that. Um, To me, that's just evidence of the compassion of our hearts in indigenous people and you know hosting just like we would anybody that would come into to our home territory we would we would host them and how you know in some places the the colonizers came in fighting they came in guns blazing and i'm gonna kill you all on contact but in some cases in what's now called Canada, they came in and they're like, we actually don't know how to be here and we need you. We need you to, to survive. So of course, like the men would, it's, it's, I think it's a combination of like the, the genuine compassion of the hearts of indigenous women combined with men were more able to manipulate the women to get their needs met mm. than, than fight the men. Also combined with the fact that they left their women behind. When they came, they left, you know, many things behind. They took many things with them. One of the things that they left behind was 
their women and their elders. So they, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have women with them. I remember you saying actually this in, in the workshop you gave once where, you know, you, you really personified that, that voice of the indigenous, you know, meeting these probably, you know, somewhat emaciated, um, wild eyed folk that washed up and asking them, Hey, where's your strong women? You know, where, where are your elders? Um, because that's what it would have naturally been to ask those things. I think, you know, of any, of any people that would have, you know, arrived and, uh, you know, I wonder what the answer would have been. Yeah. They, I mean, it's probably when I ask that, and this is like a role play, uh, activity that we do in the, in my workshops, you know, when I ask that, it's often like, I don't know. <laughs> and the, and it probably would have been the same thing, like five, 10, 15 generations ago. I don't know. And I'm like, as an indigenous person, I'm like, why should I listen to you? You're clearly in need. You're clearly disheveled and traumatized and malnourished and without community and without a home. And you're trying to tell me what to do and how to be and how to live. I'm like, where are your roots? Where are your strong women? Where are your elders? Where's your council of grandmothers? Where's your council of grandfathers? Um, like, shouldn't they be here making sure that you're not sick? You look, you know, not well. And, and I think that's when I ask that even today, folks are like, I don't know. And, now they're, now they want to know. Now they're beginning to piece it back together and being like, oh, it was left. And what can we salvage from what we have left? And, and, um, what's important to salvage and reclaim and get back to that we left behind that was taken. Yeah. I just had this image of you saying that as well, that every moment or every, every encounter now between, you know, an indigenous and a settler is an opportunity to repattern first contact. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's just an image that came to me. You know, and and in the same way, if if one in that moment is to say, "I don't know, I don't know my roots, I don't know," you know, that's no different than it seems like what they, they were saying when the fir- when the folks arrived and couldn't answer either. And so, uh, this it strikes me as a really powerful image, actually that. Yeah, like I mean, that's really what feels like relationship is, right? Is the ability to to tend um, a relationship which is ongoing and not in the past, and you know has a lot of hurt and all the rest. With that in mind, you know, this subject of or topic around decolonization, you know, comes up a lot, and I'm curious. You know, it tends to have different meanings for different people, um, or they they see it maybe a bit different. And I wonder for you. Do you think this lens of decolonization is helpful? And what does that mean to you if you if you do think it's valuable? It's well, it's pretty it's a pretty heavily, heavily loaded uh concept, decolonization. And what I understand it to be is the returning back to being human again. So all of these things that took us away from it, all of these forms of modernization that take us away from our own humanity that keep us numbed and unfeeling and not connected, that keep us separated from each other, all take us from our, our core humanity as, as a people. So in essence, in, in my heart of hearts, 
that that is the journey of decolonizing is becoming human again. For me, I become human again from the perspective of being Indigenous because I have strong roots, a community I was born to, a village that I come from, and a culture and elder and elders that I can source that kind of guidance from in my returning to my humanity. So my returning to my own humanity looks Indigenous. And I, I think for, for folks who don't have that, it, when I, when I see people who I would identify as being on a decolonizing path, so to speak, they're people who do, uh, more of the healing and feeling work. They're showing up in their own emotional baggage and trauma. They're, um, a part of something bigger than themselves. They're contributing some kind of meaning to the world. They have a sense of purpose or, um, at least a desire for one. Um, and they have a sense of connection to, to the earth. Um, and you know, with other humans, so I think the, the confusion happens when somebody who doesn't have a strong sense of their own indigenous roots uh, tries to decolonize by becoming indigenous like us, becoming mm. indigenous like whatever kind of whatever they find at the New Age store from, mm. you know, indigenous people and in the parts of their cultures that has been exploited here. So that's, that's where it becomes problematic. That's where it becomes controversial and confusing. But in essence, in my heart of hearts, I feel like the journey of decolonizing is, is simply becoming human again, becoming human again. What do you say to men in particular, you know, men of, of settler descent or white identity what do you say to them or what is their particular uh, role in decolonizing? I would say really investigating and unpacking your own whiteness and your own maleness and seeing how the whole world as it's become was designed to revolve around you um, in every way. And I can barely comprehend the vastness of that, but it's just been through the voices of the people who've come through these, these workshops and trainings that I run that they're like, holy crap, I'm, I'm now faced with the fact that the whole world doesn't revolve around me. I'm not entitled to everything. Sometimes people are going to say no to me and I'm going to have to be okay with that. And I'm not the most important person in the room whenever I walk in. And, you know, that could come from, you know, what Chief Elaine Jr. calls it churchianity <laughs> of like the, the God centric way of conditioning of like male God centric. If, if someone has had any kind of influence of that, just by virtue of that, by being male and white, you view yourself as dominant, more important than everyone else. Even if it's not, you know, you don't consider yourself religious, you don't go to church, there's still that over looming paradigm of God-centric way of being. And I see it so much in, in the more new age, new age, um, culture of like, I mean, even DJs, <laughs> you know, other than, you know, female DJs, obviously like, but when it's male DJs, I'm like, you're up on a pedestal. You're the only one. We're all <laughs> facing you. 
we're moving based on what you're booming out of whatever device you're using. It just, when I first encountered that, it seemed so godlike. <laughs> you know, after being raised doing traditional, um, you know, Northwest Coast First Nations singing, drumming, and dancing, which is very much in a circle, very much about community, very much about honoring something bigger than ourselves together, very much about standing, you know, in symbolism and righteousness, you know, of our ancestors to going from that to like a DJ <laughs> <laughs> playing God with us on their puppet string. You know, that it's, it just wow. seems so like, dad, does no one else see this? This is weird. Like my initial indigenous perspective was just kind of blown away, <laughs> blown away by that. So I think, yeah, you know, coming back to like unpacking your own whiteness and and I would I would love to see white men supporting other white men in that and having conversations about it and hearing one another and comparing notes of like the different investigations of identity that you all have done and what you've learned together from that. And I've become pretty hyper aware of it in in my life and in my interactions with white men in my own healing journey in my own reclaiming of my own indigeneity and i've become super vigilant on whether or not i feel safe whether or not i don't and the more white someone is the less indigenous i'm allowed to be the more threatened they feel by my indigeneity. So then I need to like tone it down or call them out or dodge things or be guarded. So I base whether or not I feel safe on how indigenous I can be with the white male that I'm interacting with. And if I need to tone it down too much, I, I leave. I'm like, this isn't safe for me. This isn't a safe healing environment for my returning to my own indigeneity. I have to pretend to be white for your convenience and that's not healing. Wow. That's a really powerful uh, frame. And I wonder, could you speak a bit more to, so what is it that is you feel is being triggered there in, let's say in the white male who, who's challenged by your indigeneity? Like what is the, what, do you, what is the going on there? Do you think? I think there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of like, what do you think of me? Um, am I a bad person for being white? Do you think I'm racist? And I think in essence, the most, you know, from subtle racism to extreme racism, there's this, this sense that I get of like, the white male psyche thinks that we're here as people of color to make them feel bad for being white. Uh -huh. <laughs> and nobody wants to feel bad for being who they are. We, we're here to make them feel ashamed. And, and the, the, the human brain and heart will go through such extremes to not feel shame. And it sounds like, why don't you just get over it? It was that, you know, it was so long ago. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. So that's what shame sounds like when it's trying to be dodged and avoided. And so that's, that's what I encounter. Yeah, wow. It really makes me think too of um, just in general encounters. You know, I'll, I'll out myself too in the in experiences where often uh, you know with a female partner, well, they'll you know express something or a feeling around maybe behavior I did or how something impacted them, and and how quickly I want to dodge the feeling it. 
right? And it's, and it's almost like the shame feeling there is actually not the actual feeling. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like the feeling is actually, maybe it's sadness, right? Or maybe it's some other thing, but the, it's almost like the shame is like the outer layer and it's inherently wants to be avoided, I feel, from that mechanism. And then that's when the justifications or the excuses start or whatever it is to say, well, you know, that wasn't my fault or whatever it is. So there's something in, I think, your invitation, which is almost like being being with the feeling, actually. That's something I feel you've spoken to a lot in you know the times that we've spent um, in this work of feeling as a way of connecting. You know, and, and, and you said some phrase one time, which I, I can't remember the exact terminology, but it was something like, you know, we, we can only go as deep as we're both willing to feel, something like that. You know, like, and if somebody's feeling a lot and the other person can't meet them in the feeling, it's like they feel abandoned or they feel unmet. And, and it kind of like stymies the capacity to actually, you know, really make contact. Um, and so I feel that in what you're saying, like this, uh, this ability or willingness to, to go into the depths of the feeling in order to actually, in order to actually connect. And, and it seems like that's the fertile ground where, you know, something different can emerge. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that makes white people or white men uncomfortable with me is that I, I make them feel things just by being present. I'm visibly indigenous. I, you know, I, I wear things on my body. I, I ground my experience on earth with wearing these you know, forms of jewelry that, and that identify me as West Coast indigenous. And it, it challenges the white people around me to look at their own whiteness because I'm so outwardly indigenous. And they, they don't, I think it's not even necessarily that they, they don't like that I'm making them feel bad. I'm, you know, quote, making them feel bad, but just that I'm making them feel. Uh huh. It's, it's kind of burst their bubble of, of numbness, perpetual numbing and disconnection from heart and like making them, making them feel. And sometimes it's like, it's not all, it's not all shame. You know, it's not all like, oh, you're making me feel bad. So I'm going to react to you aggressively or, you know, violently. It's sometimes it's like, I, you make me feel yearning to be indigenous, to, to belong, to have an identity, to have a sense of, sense of connection to something bigger than myself, to have home, to have a sense of home. And one of the things that's coming to my awareness at this time, Ian, is this whole thing of like, when Europeans arrived on our shorelines, they arrived with nothing left to give. They, they came from such a broken place, such a broken home, that their basket of offerings was empty. And they're, they're, homeless and hungry and malnourished and barely made it across the ocean, barely made the journey. And now I get people to look at their basket and say, what are you here to give? And that is right relationship making. That is, that is right use of privilege to be like, this is, you know, I'm a guest. I'm an uh, often uninvited guest on stolen indigenous land. And this is the basket of offerings that are come that come from my people and this is what I have to give to make my time here worthy and a contribution. Mm. 
that strikes me as a very different frame than the contemporary conversations on whiteness, um, in particular, white fragility, right, as a term that has been brought up uh, more. Robin D'Angelo, the writer, um, has gotten, you know, much larger of, in the wake of the recent the George Floyd killing and the, you know, surge of willingness to to really look at these issues. And I want to draw a comparison to, uh, out here, uh, I was at a Indigenous-led anti-racism gathering of a somewhat, you know, intimate group. It was about 20, 20 or so, 30 with an indigenous elder um, who was hosting. And I was struck by how going there, I was thinking, okay, we're going to talk about white fragility. We're going to get into this, you know, kind of a social justice lens. (laughs) And the whole thing ended up being largely, you know, time around the fire, you know, carrying the canoe, you know, from, from the water and out and paddling around and, you know, hearing stories around the fire and stuff. And in some ways, the part in me was like, well, what about, you know, what about the strategy of the anti-racism and all this and, and right fragility and the elegance with which I believe was transmitted some other kind of deeper cultural understanding of, of you know, what does it mean to be indigenous and to be a people and to carry gifts, like you said, and all of that was so different than, you know, what I quote expected. So I draw, I see a parallel in what you're saying though as well between, you know, the challenges of trying to create change you know, but from a place which, I don't know, it doesn't feel generative either. Like, and I've heard this claim around that even this concept of white fragility, like, is it that helpful? Do you think the lens of white fragility is helpful in inviting exactly what you just said, like this, this willingness for people to truly look at, like, what gifts are they actually carrying? You know, um, how do they step into that, that ability? I would, I would say that looking at white fragility, just looking at whiteness in general is a crucial step in coming back into right relationship in that it's the, it's the inner work that needs to be done and that, that will inevitably be done when walking in that direction. And the, the more that folks can do that on their own time, and not, you know, stepping into the front line, helping, being, you know, in action and then seeing a thing or having a conversation with an Indigenous person or person of color and then being triggered in their whiteness. And now they're bringing that into that space where they're, you know, supposed to be helping. And then their um, identity crisis or realizations or their their own patterns of fragility become very loud and take up a lot of space And so doing, and I've seen the damages of that. I've seen the impact of somebody coming in and being what I would consider very white and being in a helping being of action kind of support role and having that have more long-term harmful impacts. Like, yes, they came and they did the thing and they brought the resource and they did this, you know, they stepped into action, they helped. And their, their whiteness made it their their unconscious relationship to their own whiteness made it hard on everybody mm. and and had a bigger impact than their current worldview can comprehend and did damages that now we need to process that because it's like yes you came to help but then you left this mess which is all the things that you weren't willing to feel mm. so feel the things feel the things first on your own time with your own you know, other people who are also willing to feel the things 
and then and then show up in a more grounded, clear way. Just like with any other relationship, something that I often come back to in this work that I do is relating it to relationship building. When you're coming into intimate relationship with another person, the more of of an understanding of your own emotional makeup, your trauma, your triggers, your tools of healing, your ways of communicating, the more you understand that about yourself, makes you more capable to show up in intimate, loving, trusting relationship with another human. So as a settler white people, the more you can do your work, your emotional work, your trauma work, your identity work, finding out your triggers, your traumas, what triggers your shame, you know, what you do when you're in that, um, what processes help you come out of that, how you can be supported than that, and then coming to us in a more clear, grounded way. And that might take time. And oftentimes people come and they take part in what I offer and they don't step into action for a while. And I'm okay with that. You know, there's, you know, obviously there's different levels of action. Maybe for now, I'm just going to donate money and, but I'm not going to do hands-on stuff (laughs) until I feel like I can show up in a, in a clear grounded way and not do more damage and project my trauma and project my whiteness or my shame, um, into the, into the space of the people that I'm helping. I really appreciate that. And I feel that, you know, there's this paradox that often arises that, you know, I feel, and I know other men as well can feel where, you know, on the one hand, there's good reason to be seen as, or, or to recognize that, you know, the white man has occupied a position of, you know, authority and, and in many ways his time is up in the sense of being centered, certainly. Um, and at the same time, there's this call, it feels like from, you know, people of color and the indigenous to say, okay, you know, time for you to be quiet, you know, pay attention, listen, you know, do that work. Um, but then particularly when there's a, you know, a cultural surge around, you know, some kind of trespass or rally or whatever it is, it's like, white man, we need to hear your voices and support. And <laughs> so there's this, this is like the paradox. It's like, shut up and sit down, but wait, no, no, no. Like, vo- you know, give our support on our behalf. And so I wonder about that line. Like, how do you, how would you orient uh, a man, a white man in particular in this, you know, what's the right position to be in? I feel like, and I, and it changes, I get that, but you know, I just feel like uh, it is a, I, I wonder how many are maybe in this kind of inaction, right? Cause they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. Cause anything I do, it seems like the wrong thing. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. And, and that's, that's where we're at. That's where we're at right now. It's like, um, shut up and do your work and, and, you know, be there for each other. Do, do your, do your emotional labor and show up in action, show up in knowing your place, knowing that you are white, you know, white male, often uninvited guest on stolen land and tuning into the cues of your hosts of indigenous people, of people Mm -hmm. of color. And if, if possible, you know, ground, grounding in and seeing, you know, identifying the, the matriarch and their helpers and saying, I'm here, I'm here to help. These are the three things I can offer. Be clear with what you, you know, what you want to offer. I can speak. I can, uh, offer protection. If there's other white men who come, I can speak to the, you know, police authorities for you. I can, um, I can deescalate you know, situations if another white male comes and like, so whatever, whatever it is that you feel that you're 
that you're able to offer, be clear with that. And then go back to like the, the observing, being, being in silence, holding your center, um, taking, taking care of yourself so that when you are called upon to, to be in action. And I gotta say, there have been so many times in the past couple of years, you know, as I become more outwardly indigenous where I really appreciate the supportive presence of white men who are aware of their whiteness, who, who are doing the work, I feel such a sense of safety in those handful of relationships that I do have with white men who are practicing allies that I can call upon and being like, yeah, that's, it's, it's very, it's very needed. <laughs> it's very needed as we put ourselves out there and try to dismantle mm. this white male world. Hmm. Thank you. I just want to reflect what I think was really uh, clear there, this sense of, of, yeah, one, be able to get clear on what it is actually that they can provide. Because I think part of the uh, inability to respond at all is when there's a sense of, oh, that's too much to do. And, you know, I can't pick one or I don't know what to do. And, and I really appreciate that. And I'll say like for me, you know, in the last event that we did, I, I feel I was able to get more clear that one of the ways in which I can uh, be a practicing ally um, sp- more specifically is to yeah, utilize the platforms that I do have to amplify indigenous voices, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, Dallas Goldtooth in a previous interview, um, this interview here, you know, for me is trying to be in service to that. And um, it's been helpful in that regard to be able to, yeah, to get clear and, and, and then to, yeah, like you say, sit back and keep doing the work, keep doing the education. Um, so I just appreciate that, uh, that invitation for the listener as well. What do you see going forward in the sense of like restoring, you know, what's possible. Um, and I know it's a big question and, and I guess I'm referring to, you know, again, a passage in this book um, that I'm reading where, you know, the author just touches upon this sense that, you know, imagine back around first contact time or when the settlers started arriving, you know, let's just say, what if, imagine that the relationship or the orientation to the indigenous was not, Oh, they're kind of in the way of us, you know, doing what we want. Um, therefore, you know, they're a problem to fix. You know, he's like, imagine that there was a true collaboration struck whereby the gifts that the indigenous were carrying were actually welcomed as gifts. And that, you know, collaboration of worldviews from that spirit of true, you know, right relationship, you know, could have written a very different story. And and he's not saying a sort of, uh, you know, if only too bad, but more like, like I said, maybe that first contact happens again and again. Like, what do you see emerging as these larger trends of this moment? You know, because what I would say, or at least from my outside perspective, is that it seems to be that a lot of the uh, more direct, directly traumatic experiences that a lot of Indigenous have endured, you know, particularly the more recent generations of residential schools and the rest, it seems to be that the youngers are, in a way, now growing up with a sense of their identity, like, uh, you know, as it's now been able to be more anchored, you know, in, in what feels like a, uh, a surge and, and they're powerful leaders, you know, uh, seem to be arising, um, of the youngers. And for me, I mean, I take great, great inspiration and great hope in this. And I wonder again, what do you see as like the, the trend that's emerging now among the indigenous in North America? I see us making a comeback. I see us coming back from the brink of extinction and in a very righteous, loud, booming way, and that inspires me to no end. I see us 
yeah, just on a, just on a, on a healing, on a healing path, on a healing journey. And I love meeting other indigenous people and people of color and seeing how are you doing it? What's, you know, what are your ways of staying indigenous, becoming indigenous again? You know, what's going on in your community and, you know, where, you know, what's your place in that and what support do you need in being a part of your community? And so, from from the indigenous perspective, I, I see us making a comeback. And as I return deeper into my own indigeneity, it's it keeps me close to the earth and keeps me close to my heart. The the perpetual the perpetual humanity of it all. There's always something intense going on. There's always some <laughs> kind of um, like crisis or holy crap, I can't believe that happened or I can't believe this is happening. It seems like it's never going to go away, the long-term impacts of colonization. And I, yeah, I take, I take a lot of inspiration. I receive a lot of inspiration from seeing the other Indigenous people and, and what they're doing and knowing that we're in it together. We're in it together. And from you know, from the work that I do, from the, you know, the Indigenous consultation work that I do and being a cultural bridger in that way, what I see emerging at this time, you know, at least in this Coast Salish region where where we are, is this like, okay, we're sick of hearing the land acknowledgements. <laughs> now what? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Quit just standing there with the microphone and doing this to make yourself feel good and doing this, like acknowledging whose land you're on and like do something about it. And then I get people being like, we're on this territory and we want to offer what we do to the local tribe, but we don't know. Do we go to their website? Do we, they haven't answered my emails. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to access connection with them. And so that's where people like myself come in and being like, oh, this is how you approach them. This is the good tonality to use when initiating conversation with them. This is what they're going to want to know about you. Um, so it's about that. Okay, there's people who show up willing to acknowledge and willing to do the work. They just need direction. And so I'm seeing this more like right use of privilege coming into action, having more um, resources available like books like what you're talking about and the white fragility um the list goes on and having that be a support in the coming back into right relationship in the right use of privilege and you know five ten fifteen years ago it was a really big deal to acknowledge that we're on indigenous land just to say that was paradigm shifting and edgy and triggering And now that that's been said and said and acknowledged and acknowledged and said over and over, they're like, okay, now what? (laughs) It's not edgy anymore. It's, it's kind of poking a hurt place. It's poking a hurt place. And, and now what are you going to do about it? You're just going to come here and trigger me and leave. Like, how are you going to show up in action? Mm -hmm. You know, here on the, the, the community where I live that I really started to, I mean, try and, and almost like dig through the amnesia is one way I, I perceive it of this place and the stories of this place and the, you know, the names that places were called before, you know, the English names became, you know, quote, all they were called. And 
it is it i'll just report that it's having a really profound impact on my um capacity to see just like the multi-layered reality of place and and as i also develop relationship to it and to you know the nation here and so uh, this is why i want to encourage you know the listener even to just like start you know like it uh, otherwise it again it, it can always be this sort of maybe terrifying or confusing thing and you know i hear in you this uh the invitation yeah just start um you know and that be you'll be surprised where it's going to take you i think you know whether it, it's into one one's own lineage and and all of a sudden wow i didn't know i was you know i had this or i didn't know the story of my great grandfather and well that's how they came here you know and uh and begin to tease apart this kind of uh omnipresent fixation on you know the future and better and you know you know up and out and out of here which is so much of that running from energy right that just doesn't want to feel so i uh i just want to honor you and your ability to hold that pillar of you know really the power of of feeling of compassion of turning toward you know of right relationship um which i feel is so much of the medicine that you carry mm-hmm. how can the listener support your work well, I do consultations, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I do events, right? I do like the weekend immersive events. And those are kind of the, the heart of, of what I offer. I also do like consultations for um, anywhere, like nonprofits, companies, public services, if they want to build better relationships with Indigenous people or bring more of a uh, and honoring of indigenous people into their workplace. So I do that. And yeah, I I do these weekend immersive events, which hasn't been happening all year because of COVID, which is kind of, it's really given me a lot of downtime and reflection on, on what I offer and the direction that I want to go in. And I've been designing uh, more of a one-on-one platform you know, or like groups of three, I would love to do like groups of three, three to five, go through like a a journey together and then come out with like a little mini support network with each other. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's what's in the works right now, you know, in, in the wake of, of COVID and everything happening and not doing the weekend in person stuff. I was very resistant to doing big group work, via zoom or you know whatever it is because it's such intense work it has led to a trauma and people are isolated and don't have as many resources available to them and i wouldn't want to trigger a whole group of strangers that come on the zoom call and then be like good luck with that bye end of call so doing little groups of you know three to five people and having that be a support network built into itself is the direction that i'm going in at this time with what i offer and what's the website they can turn to? IndigenousRelationsConsultation.com Beautiful. Any final words you'd like to leave this episode with? Um, you are evidence of the strength of your ancestors. Mm. There's many things within your lineage that tried to obliterate all forms of goodness. And you're living proof that it didn't work. Mm, a beautiful affirmation and a prayer. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Pokenix. You're welcome. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening 
and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.